Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Last week, uh, if you were here, we, we started sharing some stories. And, and through this series that we began last week, we want to be intentional to just share stories of, of times when Jesus met people, when people met Jesus in, in unexpected places. Uh, if you were here last week, we heard the story of Rachel Helton, who met Jesus for the first time actually in, in a strip club and her life. We heard the story of just God's redeeming and radical work in her life. Um, well, today we have a, a pleasure of hearing another story. And uh, this is a, a great friend of mine. This is Ashley Smith. And she's obviously been leading us this morning and, and doing a wonderful job with that. She is a, a worship leader in Huntsville, Alabama. Ashley and I grew up together. So we've known each other a very long time. And Ashley has known the Lord uh, for a very long time. But uh, a few years ago, um, she met the Lord in a deeper way, in a new way. And uh, let's welcome her as she shares that story with us. <laughs> hey, hey, there we go. Hey, you guys, my name is Ashley, as Jason said, and I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. And I just want to share just in a, a brief way the story of how God redeemed my life and took it from a place of just utter darkness and despair into a point to where I thought, what's the purpose in living to a life of redemption, hope, uh, servanthood? Um, I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, like Jason said, and uh, I had a, a great life, a great upbringing. I, I didn't want for anything. Uh, my parents just let me try new things. I played sports all growing up. That was uh, my identity was I was the athlete. Um, I loved softball and soccer and volleyball and swimming and you name it, I wanted to try it and I wanted to be the best. So all through high school, that's what I did. I played sports. Um, in my senior year of high school, I started playing guitar, and uh, actually Jason was the one who taught me the first few chords of guitar, so he plays too, if y'all don't know that, and uh, after, I think it was Sweet Home Alabama, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> anyway, because of that, I'd always loved to sing growing up as well, but I was very shy, and I thought, you know, no one else wanted to hear me sing, but I loved to sing, so after I learned to play guitar, I thought, you know, hey, I can, I can maybe marry these two together, and maybe this will be my path. I thought after high school athletics, I didn't see a future in college, so maybe singing is now the avenue that the Lord will lead me down. Um, I'd begun to go to a church in high school as well, and I feel like the Lord had a uh, opened my heart to his, to his heart, but I did not receive the grace and the mercy and understand what it meant when he took his son Jesus and hung him on a cross. So you got to understand where my perception was of what being a follower of Christ looked like. It was going to church. It was, you know, being a good person. Um, but deep down, there was something empty inside of me. So now I'm done playing sports. I'm off to music, and I go to Auburn University, and I love Auburn. I started leading at a church there, and I got to do a few events there, and I began to write music as well. So now the passion for music, that identity, was in that. So at first it was sports, and now it's in music. And so I, I think to myself, all right, well, God, I, I think this is the path you're leading me down, but God, I don't know what direction to go. So I began to pray, and after I graduate from college, um, I get married to a wonderful man. I've been married for 14 years this December, which is crazy to think about. And uh, he uh, just took me by the hand and said, hey, well, if you want to lead worship, you know, let's start looking. So an opportunity came up at a church in Huntsville, and I began to lead in a contemporary venue there. 
So here's where things get a little sticky. Um, all through uh, college, I began dabbling uh, in drinking and drugs just a little bit because in my mind it was okay because I wasn't looking like those people. And so as that continued on into uh, my adulthood, I had uh, surgery back to back two surgeries and you know they they give you pain pills after that and so from my history of hey I'm not that bad I thought I can still take these and be okay so I'm this person that is leading worship I get my dream job leading at a contemporary venue and now I'm hooked on pain pills so from there, um, alcohol was involved too. Um, there were many nights where I was not sure if I was going to wake up. Um, it is by the grace of God I have my health today. So I'm going to fast forward quite a bit. This is the brief version of this story. And eight years later, God pulls the root out of this sin. So that's a long span, and there's a lot in between that. But I was leading worship at a church, living this lie, telling you what the gospel was and hiding in sin and in secret. And it was a desperate, dark place. By that time, I have three children. Now they're seven, nine, and 11. And I was very much walking in my own truth and putting myself up on the pedestal thinking, well, I mean, I'm okay, and they don't know. So how everything kind of came to pass was I ended up getting caught doing what I was doing. I did not confess. I got caught. So it took me going to rehab a couple times to finally get it and know that I want this. It, someone else couldn't tell me. I had to realize that I want this because I know there's nothing better than the love of Jesus Christ. That there's nothing better than being rooted in the identity of who he is first. Because for so long, my identity was shaken and my perception was shaken because I had these diamonds raining down on me and I thought everything revolved around me. I thought when I walked in a room, there was a sign that said, Ashley's here. It was real ugly, real ugly, y'all. And so because that kingdom that I was building was crumbling, I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know where to go. I was losing my family. My husband was ready to leave and take my kids. And that to me was the most devastating thing until Christ intervened. He said, what about me? You don't have me, Ashley. And so in treatment, I was on, uh, up in my bedroom, and I opened my Bible, and I just said, God, I don't know. I don't know where to go, but I am desperate, and I need help. And I just flipped the Bible open, and it was the Second Corinthians, and he talks about being the God of all comfort, who comforts you in your troubles, so then you can go and comfort others in theirs. And I just wept. You know, he says the word comfort in those passages 11 times. 11. You know, he didn't just say, I'm going to kind of comfort you. He says, I'm going to blanket you with my comfort. Trust me. And so in that moment, I got a pen and a paper, and I was so broken, and I just started to scratch lyrics. And out came a song that I feel was birthed out of the death of who I was so I could be resurrected in Christ and who he is. And it's called Beautifully Broken. And that song has kind of been my mantra of what God has done. And all glory goes to him. There are so many people fighting addiction, especially in a room this size. You know somebody if it's not you. And I just want to encourage you to get help. You can't do this alone. There's no way I could have done it alone because I tried for eight years. <laughs> I did a lot of lying and cheating and stealing to get to that depth of hurt. But I will tell you there's promises and the promises are so good because when you trust, 
the freedom that you gain out of trusting in Christ, there's, it's matchless. Nothing compares to that. It's beautiful. And then you learn how to be a servant. I didn't know how to do that. I thought about me, myself, and I. And so today I try to live a life of gratitude, and I don't do it perfectly. I mess up every day. But I have a team of people around me who know my stuff. I'm accountable for my stuff, and they encourage me. And when I hurt, I go to God first. Then I go to my people, my tribe, my family. God is so good, y'all. He's given us so much. And I'm going to share that song, Beautifully Broken, after the sermon. But I just wanted to encourage you, whatever you're going through, God is there. He is constant, never failing, never shaking. Our God is good. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. And we're looking forward to to hearing uh, that song later on in our service. Uh, But for now, let's open our Bibles together. Our scripture reading uh, for today comes from the Gospel of Luke. We continue uh, in this journey of Luke, looking at different encounters that Jesus had uh, in this gospel um, with people just like us. Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. And of course, these things are written by the gospel writer Luke. They come to us, therefore, with authority, the same kind of authority under the power of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, with the, as if Jesus himself were teaching these things to us. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Luke seven thirty-six through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who was touching him and what sort of woman this was, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 nera and the other 50. When they could not pay, He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that she has come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. 
You know, it's always striking to me um, when I hear a story like Ashley's, and even in a setting like this, uh, from someone like Ashley, how, how vulnerable she's willing to be. I mean, it's very difficult to, in uh, a setting of strangers, uh, really share a story that uh, is not only um, difficult to share, it's not only embarrassing to share, it's kind of shameful uh, to share. Uh, and, and so long, I know that, as she said, she, she was in, in bondage to that same kind of thing. She couldn't be honest with what was going on in her real life because of this presence she had. But now here she is in front of strangers being so free before us. And, and I kind of think to myself, where do you get that kind of freedom? You know, where, where is that found? Where, where can we find that kind of freedom that we could really be known, that we could really be vulnerable, that we could really be exposed in that kind of way? What do we make of this kind of freedom? And maybe how do you get that kind of relationship with God? Now, last week, if you were here, we, we started this sermon series called Jesus' Friend of Sinners, and we're looking at encounters that Jesus has with people in so many ways that were despised, that, that were rejected by the world, and, and encounters that he has with them, and, and they often turn in, in interesting kind of ways, and, and this story is, is no, uh, no exception uh, the title of the story, if, if you have a Bible that has headings, in my Bible that has little headings, they were written later, but the little title says, A Sinful Woman is Forgiven, or a, a, The Forgiveness of a Sinful Woman. And your Bible may something, say something like that. It's easy to look at this story and think about Jesus' interaction with the woman. But he doesn't just interact with the woman. In fact, most of his interaction in the story is with Simon, with Simon the Pharisee. And so I, I want to look at his interaction with this woman, but I also want to consider how he interacts with this man, with Simon. So the three things I want to look at today as we think about this passage are, are the religion of Simon, the religion of the woman, and then the response of Jesus. So first let's think about the religion of Simon. Now, Simon, as we read, was a Pharisee. And if you spend any time studying the gospel narratives, you know that the Pharisees were a very influential religious sect uh, they were a very powerful group of people, especially in uh, first century Israel. They had political power, they had wealth, they had religious power. I mean, people admired them, they respected them, they looked up to them. They were e economically feared, they were socially feared. They had a lot of influence. And Simon was one of these guys. I mean, he had, it's what I like to call the narrative. Simon had the narrative. He had the story that everybody wants. Everybody wants to be like Simon. You know, he, he had money, he had power, he had wealth, he had everything going for him. But Simon, don't, don't get the story wrong here, right? Don't misinterpret Simon. He was also his own man, right? He wasn't just listening to social cues, following the order of the day. I mean, Simon was kind of bold, and we know that because of what Simon does in this story, if you think about it, the, the Pharisees and Jesus, if you're familiar with the gospel narratives, they had this kind of rivalry. They, they really hated one another. I mean, the Pharisees certainly hated Jesus. He was a total threat to them. He was a threat to their order. First of all, he might have made the Romans mad, which would have been a loss of everything for them. They had this delicate balance of power between the, the Jewish people of the day, particularly the religious leaders and the Roman government. He might have uh, exposed them in some sort of way, showing their manipulation of the people, showing their hypocrisy, which terrified them. Uh, he might turn the people away from them, and then they would lose all of their power. They would lose all of their might. And so the Pharisees and Jesus had this very tenuous, very strained, to, to say it lightly, relationship. If you remember, the only other Pharisee 
that any sort of interaction like this with Jesus was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, of course, came to Jesus under the, the guise of nighttime. And he, he secretly met with Jesus, but not Simon. You know, Simon is the courageous one among them. Simon is the bold one among them. He says, you know, I'm not going to meet with Jesus in secret. I'm having him over to dinner. I'm going to have him over uh, to my house. And this would have been big news. The Pharisee invites Jesus in. The Pharisee invites Jesus over. This would have made news all over the city. And we know that that's true because this woman, the woman of the city, who was a sinner, and of course, every implication there, that this prostitute woman in the city learns about this. She finds out that this Pharisee is having Jesus over to dinner, and she does something amazing. She goes to the dinner. But again, Simon, he was, he was kind of the guy. And, and, you know, he's not too different than a, a lot of you. I mean, Simon's the guy that he made good grades. He got the good job. He did what his mom told him to do. He did what he was supposed to do. He was successful. He was respected. But he was also his own man, right? Don't go around saying that Simon is, you know, being pushed into some mold here. He was his own man, but he found Jesus here intriguing, and of course, Jesus was intriguing at this time. If you look at any of the passages leading up to Luke 7, I mean, Jesus has declared that he was the Messiah. He's cured a man of leprosy. He's cured a centurion ser- uh, servant, which means that he was kind of in good with the Romans. Amazingly, he raised uh, this widow's son from, from death. So all of these stories were floating around about all of these things that Jesus was doing. Now, I don't know if Simon believed all of them, right? You know, we don't know if Simon really believed that Jesus was doing this, but it was enough to investigate. It was enough to get a dinner. It was enough to say, you know what, I at least want to have a conversation with this Jesus guy. And such are some of you. You know, I I don't know what you believe of Jesus. I don't know how you categorize him. I don't know how, you know, much of the Bible you actually believe to be from God, but it's at least worth a worship service, right? It's at least worth you coming here. It's at least worth you kind of leaning in and listening and and seeing what the Bible has to say. But of course, you can tell here in the passage that Simon is testing Jesus. Look at verse 39 again. It says, when the Pharisee, this is Simon, when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, saw that the, this woman of the city was touching him, was anointing his feet. When he saw this, he said to himself, well, pff, this probably isn't true. This guy probably isn't what he says he is. He's, if he were a prophet, he would know what's going on here. He would know who and what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. And this tells us a lot about the religion of Simon. But next I want to look at the religion of the woman. As you read this story, you have to keep in mind, again, the the courage of this woman. She is a woman of the night, and, and yet she goes to a Pharisee's house. I mean, the most, basically the most embarrassing place she could have gone, the, the place where she was most vulnerable, the place where she could have been shamed in the most profound way, and she brings in with her her most valuable possession, the alabaster flask. Now, if you don't know anything about the alabaster flask, it would have been a small container of perfume that this woman would have worn around her neck, and it was incredibly valuable. This is a smelly time. This is a dirty time. And perfume was a precious, precious commodity. And it would have been too valuable for her to actually put it on. In fact, uh, there's another account of this story. It talks about the alabaster flask being worth 300 denarii. 
So a denarii was about uh, a day's wage at the time. So think about that. This is, this is almost the annual wage of uh, an individual that she has hanging around her neck. And, and in so many ways, it, it was her life uh, line. It was her wages. It was, it was her allure. All she would do is open it up. She wouldn't put it on, but she would open it up. And the, the good scent of the, the ointment in it uh, would, would be part of her allure. Again, with her profession, this is incredibly important for her, incredibly uh, valuable for her. Her whole identity, if you will, was wrapped up in the alabaster flask. And here she is making money based on this. This is, this is everything. This is her value. And here she is pouring it out, not on the head, but on the feet, on the dirty feet of Jesus. But it goes beyond that. She's weeping. Now keep in mind, this, this woman probably snuck in. She is not supposed to be there. This is the Pharisee's house. She just heard about it on the street. She is crashing the party here. She sneaks in, and yet when she sees Jesus, she can't control herself. And she begins weeping. Her only chance of being dignified in front of the important people in the city, and she's weeping. But it goes beyond that. She lets her hair down. New Testament scholar Robert Stein says, letting down one's hair in public was shameful, and this is amazing, and even a ground for divorce. But in her deep gratitude toward Jesus, this woman forgot social propriety and used what was available to wipe Jesus' feet, her hair. And in this we learn a lot about the religion of the woman. But before I look at the response of Jesus to this, I wanna make a couple of observations about these, these two ways, these two religions, if you will. The religion of Simon was very concerned with, with independence, control, right? Simon, Jesus, you can come into my house. I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you. I'd like to hear what you have to say about some things, but, but I need you to come in to my house. And we also know this about Simon because of his response to the woman. I mean, even what does he say when the woman, when he's thinking to himself about the woman touching Jesus, he says, if, if he really was a prophet, he would know. And what does he say? Who's touching him? This, this woman of the city, this, this woman who has been defiled, this woman who is unclean. If he was really a prophet, if he was really a holy man, he would be more concerned with his holiness, with his cleanliness, than he is right now. His whole reputation might be on the line if anyone knew who was touching him, and yet he doesn't know, he must not know. He's not like me, like Simon, who is very controlled of who I let in, of who I let out, of who I let get close to me. We know from this story that Simon certainly didn't have any dependence on Christ. He didn't offer him water. He didn't give him ointment. He didn't give him a kiss. And I think a lot of us can be like this with Jesus. We like having Jesus in the house. We want to have Jesus over. We want to have Jesus in the house just as long as he doesn't ask us to do anything too crazy, too uncomfortable. We'll have him to dinner. We will do our part with Jesus just so long as we are in control. Just as long as, you know, he doesn't ask us to make him too valuable in our lives. And, and, and I know we're supposed to say that that Jesus is of supreme importance. But, you know, if you really look at the way that we spend our time, we spend our money, it's obvious that, that Jesus is not supreme in so many of our lives. 
The religion of Simon is a religion of independence. Keep Jesus, keep Jesus close, but stay in control. You know, if Jesus asks you to give up a career in business where you can make a lot of money to go be a missionary or something, that's a little out of bounds. Jesus asks you to take a, a gospel stand at work that may cost you the promotion. Again, it's a, it's a little out of bounds for Jesus. You know, you're welcome to come to dinner, but that's a little much. <laughs> that's a little too far, Jesus. But the religion of Simon also wants to make a good offer with Jesus. Look, if you'll just kind of stay in the house, abide by the rules, I've got a lot of influential friends, Jesus. Look at all these people that you can meet. I've got a lot of social capital. There's probably going to come a time, Jesus, where you need me. So just you stay over there. You be the invited guest. Share with me some of those interesting ideas that you have. The religion of Simon is, has everything to do with independence. But look at the, the religion of the woman. It's total dependence. I mean, she goes in, again, you gotta understand how, how big this would have been for her to go into a Pharisee's home. It, was, it, was, it, was, it took enormous courage of her to meet Jesus. And then what does she do as soon as she sees him? She pours out the alabaster jar her whole identity was wrapped up in this jar and here she is pouring it out on the feet of Jesus do you see what she's doing here she is saying I am willing to sacrifice everything for you if you would love me if you would acknowledge me if you would accept me that would mean everything to me and so everything that I am I'm willing to pour it out on your feet there is a sense where this woman is coming to Jesus as her last hope as her only hope don't miss what's going on here. In the, in the New Testament, there's a big difference. It, it's hard for us to read the Bible as Americans, rightly, because we've been, in, we've been too influenced by the Bible, okay? You all grew up in America, most of you. You all grew up in Western civilization, most of you. And Western civilization is compassionate. Western civilization uh, has, is merciful, it's gracious. Why? Because Western civilization in so many ways has been influenced by Christianity. So we're compassionate people. So it's easy to read this story and think of this woman as a victim of society. You're not supposed to read the story like that. This is, this is first century Israel. This is a, an honor society. This is a right and wrong, strict religion society. This is an immoral woman. You're supposed to see this woman as an immoral person who's chosen to spend her life in this immoral way. She had taken the wrong path, and the alabaster jar was a symbol of that. And here she is seeing Jesus and pouring out her life on him, pouring out, if you will, her sin on him, her identity on him. The religion of the woman is one of total dependence. Another observation, Simon, the religion of Simon is very concerned with trends. Simon's a smart guy. He wants to be, I hear this phrase all the time, Simon wants to be on the right side of history. And you know, Jesus is an interesting guy, he's a trendy guy. Now, we don't hear of Simon ever becoming a disciple of Jesus, and I think probably because he never did. He never was really willing to go all in with Jesus because what if Jesus became untrendy one day? And I think this is easy to do with Jesus. We, we, we often kind of put Jesus away when he's not important and kind of pull him out when we need him, right? This is, this is very easy to do. When Jesus is kind of needed, we need a little help, we need a little boost, it's nice to have a little Jesus 
around. I, I've used this illustration before. I remember a few years ago, it was just a striking thing I saw that I remembered. I was, I was watching Nancy Reagan's funeral and her son, Ron Reagan, got up to give the eulogy and he said, you know, uh, I would talk to my mom about her going to be with dad after dad died. And, and then he said this, he said, I don't believe in supernatural things, but I promised mom that wherever dad was, she was going to be with him. So what does that mean? It means I don't believe in supernatural things except at funerals, you know. Oh, at funerals, the supernatural, the afterlife, that's kind of nice. Everybody believes in Jesus at funerals. Everybody prays at funerals. Everybody believes in God at funerals. And I'm sure Simon had heard of some of the miracles that Jesus has done. He thought to himself, you know what? I'll, I'll pinch in. I'll get Jesus a dinner. I may need him at some point too. The religion of Simon was into trends. And again, it's very easy to do this with Jesus. It's very easy to make Jesus whatever is expedient for you at that time. Republicans say that, well, of course, Jesus was into a small and limited government. Democrats say, of course, Jesus was into big government programs that would have cared for the poor. You know, Mormons say that Jesus came, of course, after his resurrection to America. Even, even Richard Dawkins one time said, if Jesus would have been alive today, he would have been an atheist. Everyone does this. Everyone wants Jesus to be convenient, expedient, trendy. This is the religion of Simon. But the religion of the woman has no concern with social order. She is totally embarrassing herself in front of some of the most important people she's ever been around. This is her one chance to show herself a dignified woman in front of the city leaders. And here she is weeping, letting down her hair and wiping the feet of Jesus with it. Kissing his feet, kissing his feet over and over and over again. And the text doesn't say this, but I can imagine as she would kiss his feet, her saying, have mercy on me, Lord. Remember me, Lord. No concern for her appearance. No concern for reputation. She is going all in with Jesus here. She is only focused on him. Which brings you to the third observation of these two religions. The religion of Simon was very concerned with ideas. You know, Simon wants the discourse, right? He, he wants to have Jesus over so they can talk. They can have some good Pharisee to teacher kind of conversations here. You know, when Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you, you can almost hear, you, you know he's like trapping Simon. Like, you know it's not going to be good for Simon, but Simon perks up. At last, this is what I wanted, a discussion, a discourse. Finally, I get uh, Jesus to teach, to, to kind of exchange ideas a little bit. And of course, Jesus goes on to share this parable with Simon. He wants to learn from Jesus. He, he wants to hear what Jesus has to say. You know, you know what Simon wants? Simon wants some good ideas. He wants some good Christian principles that he can make better decisions by if he hears them. And you know, a lot of people are like this with Jesus. You know, Thomas Jefferson famously had the Jefferson Bible where he cut out all of the supernatural, bloody, or weird things in the Bible, but he kept in all the moral maxims, all the things that were interesting, that made sense, that were beneficial for his life. And we released a podcast this week 
uh, when Owen Strand was here about a month ago or so, we, we had a, I interviewed him talking about Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, modern thinker. He says some interesting things. And, but he kind of treats Jesus the same way. He doesn't see him as a divine figure. He doesn't see him, doesn't see the Bible as divinely inspired, but it's full of good wisdom and good ideas. And, and this is the religion of Simon. Simon was intrigued by Jesus. He was intrigued by his ideas. He wanted to interact with him. The religion of Simon is into ideas, but the woman, look at the woman. The religion of the woman was only very concerned with the person. She didn't talk to Jesus. She just throws herself at his feet. She's willing to do anything. Jesus was more than an idea for her. He was a person. He was her hope. She had come to believe, this is my hope. This guy could save me. It, it wasn't the me- she wasn't there to measure the value of his ideas. No, she was saying, I'm with this guy. I'm with this guy. I have seen his power. I believe in his power. I believe that it'll be merciful. And whatever he says, I'm in. I'll go with it. And you know, I think for us as smart, educated Westerners, it's easy to, to start conversing with, to start thinking about the ideas of Jesus and miss the person of Jesus. You can miss who he is, that it's a real person that wants to have a relationship with you. Go there first. You know, I have a confession to make. I um, have seen both, I've seen all of the seasons of Gilmore Girls two times <laughs> in the last 10 years. I've even seen all four episodes of the Netflix original Gilmore Girls A Year in the Life. <laughs> and I know you think 10 years ago you must have read an article about Amy uh, Palladino and uh, you said to yourself, this woman can write and she's got a lot of good ideas and she's trying to say something important in this show and so you started watching. I know that's what you're thinking. That's not actually what happened. 10 years ago, I met and fell in love with Paige and she liked Gilmore Girls and so I was like, well, I just wanna do whatever you wanna do I just want to be with you. I just want to hang out with you. And that's a silly illustration to, to say what I'm trying to say here. This woman wasn't looking for ideas. She, her posture wasn't to converse and weigh the value of what Jesus had to say. No, she had a debt. She had a debt. And she was looking for a savior. And she was looking for someone that would love her despite her debt. She was looking for someone who would carry her debt. And look, if you've been weighing the ideas of Jesus and being caught up with the ideas of Jesus, just hold on to that. But first, just look to Jesus. The question you'd be asking is not are his ideas good or not. The question you'd be asking is, he, is he the son of God? Can I really know God through him? Has he really conquered death? Is he, is he, really, is he really as loving and as forgiving as these Christians say that he is? Is he really the savior of the whole world? And if he is, then you can figure out all the rest of it later. But for now, just hold on to him. Don't you see the posture difference here? Simon invites Jesus in. He wants control. He wants to engage with Jesus in a safe place. He wants to hear Jesus ideas. Simon invites Jesus in, but the woman comes to Jesus just pouring herself out, empties herself. She pours everything out. She lays herself bare before Jesus. 
And so we've talked about the religion of Simon, the religion of the woman, but last, and maybe most importantly, let's, how does Jesus respond to all this? Well, Jesus does what he always does. He, he tells a story. <laughs> he gives a parable. He, he gives this amazing message in story form, and he tells, of course, the story of this moneylender. And the story goes that the moneylender had two people, and this is an important phrase, two people that couldn't pay. Two people that couldn't pay. One owed 500, one owed 50, but, but both couldn't pay. And of course, the money lender forgives both debts. And of course, Jesus concludes the story. Well, who would love the lender more? And the Pharisee replies rightly, obviously the one that had more debt canceled. But do you see what Jesus does? He looks at, he looks at Simon and he says, do you see this woman? How does Jesus respond? He says, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Ever since I got here, you did not, but she did. You did not, but she did. You did not, but she did. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she did. She gave me tears. You didn't give me an, anoint, an ointment for my head, but she did. She's been anointing my feet. You certainly didn't kiss me, but ever since I've been here, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You did not, but she did, and then he concludes, I tell you the truth, truth, her sins, even though they are many, don't miss the story, this is not a victim of society, this is an immoral person, this person who's done bad things, even though they are many, they are forgiven. She has been accepted, she has poured herself out, and I have brought her in. She has recognized her forgiveness, she's recognized who I am, and I have forgiven her. And you know how Jesus can forgive this woman? You know how Jesus can forgive this woman? How he can make this, this sinful woman, this woman whose debt is, is great, how can he make it right? In Hebrew culture, it, if a woman had been prostituting herself, then she was unclean. She could not be married. In fact, if you got engaged to a woman and you found out that she had been prostituting herself, you know what you could do? You could take her out and have her stoned, put to death. But do you see what Jesus does here? He comes to this woman who's in that state, desperate, and he says, touch me. I'm the one that will love you. I'm the husband that not only won't put you away, but will bring you in and be put away on your behalf. I'm the one that will be stoned for you. I'm the one that will be put to death for you. And in this, he forgives. And in this, he can say to her, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And this is the message of the gospel. This wondrous love of Jesus that he can look at people like you and me that come to him broken and he can say to us, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But this is what got me this week. This is the interesting part of the story is that it doesn't really end it kind of ends open-ended. It's kind of like, what happens to Simon? <laughs> what about Simon? He's talking to Simon this whole time. This beautiful thing happens to a woman. He, the, the woman's story ends nicely, right? Go in peace, right? She leaves and she walks off. The credits roll, right? Her story, okay, there's a good ending there. She's forgiven, but what about Simon? What, what happened to Simon? What did he do? How did he respond to all this? What was his response to the story. Here, here Jesus has told this story about these people that could not pay their debts, 
And one debt is so forgiven, and he says to her, go in peace. And you know what Simon's response to the story is? He goes back into the religion of Simon. He goes back into debate mode. He says, who does this guy think he is? He can forgive sins. He goes back to ideas. He goes back to the conversation. He doesn't see that he also has a debt that he cannot pay. He's blind to it. He is so focused, kind of as Ashley was saying earlier in her story, he is so focused on the distance between his debt and her debt that he forgets about his own debt. He forgets that he has a debt that he cannot pay. He had no idea. This is Simon's problem. He had no idea who was in his house. He had no idea who Jesus really was. And here's the deal. Neither do some of you. You don't know who Jesus is. You don't know who's standing before you in these words. You don't know, you, don't, you haven't seen it yet. You, 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 you're so focused on the, the distance between your debt and other people's debts that you don't see that you yourself are just like this woman who have a debt that you cannot pay. And I hope that today that your eyes will be open to it. I hope that your eyes will see that you won't be like Simon, who's sitting right there in front of the only person who could ever pay the debt that he could not pay, and he totally misses him. His Redeemer is sitting at his table, and he missed him. And your Redeemer, in so many ways, is, is standing right before you, and, and some of you will leave here today and miss him. You will be blind. You know, I've been thinking about this week, this whole like Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing you know, about how much is known, you know, in the world. And it's different. I mean, it's different than it was back in 1982. I mean, you know, now, like, we would have known that the party happened because, like, it would have gotten, like, 125 likes on Facebook, and there would have probably been, like, pictures from the party, and we could have seen that Brett... Everything is known now. There's videos of everything, not, not everything. So much is known now. I'm thinking about, I was thinking about 30 years from now, you know, how, how many Senate confirmation hearings are going to go awry because of something that happened way back when and now we have record of it. And this is, I mean, well, where are we going? I mean, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to, to live that out. But then I was thinking, you know, one day, all of us will stand before God and it won't be a seat on the Supreme Court in the balance. It will be our soul in the balance. Forgiveness, peace, life, eternity in the balance. And on that day, everything is known. You know, the amazing thing about, you know, today a lot can be known about you. There's a lot of videos. There's, you know, things, that, every action, a lot of your actions can be known. You know, what's not known, you know, thank goodness is a lot of our intentions and a lot of our thoughts but the Bible says that Jesus judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. <laughs> Not only your actions are known, your intentions are known, your thoughts are known, everything's known. Who's willing to stand before God? Who's willing to stand before the holy judge of the world like that? Who holds your soul in the balance? The religion of Simon falls apart very quickly at the judgment seat. And my hope and prayer is that as you rightly see this, it would fall apart today. And that you would adopt a new religion. That you, like the woman, would throw, your feet, throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. 
realizing that he is the only one that can cancel your debt. But here's the deal, he does. He does. He graciously and lovingly does. He calls you in as you pour yourself out. The reason that the woman could be forgiven is he willingly took on the record of the woman. He willingly became the judgment of the woman and and died in her place and he does the same thing for us. So may our eyes be open as I pray for us now. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray that we would see. I pray that we would see. I pray that we would not be like this blind Pharisee who is sitting before the only one that could redeem his soul and yet is blind to Jesus. Father, may you take our, our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes away from, eyes off of the distance between our debt and others and on to the debt that we truly have that we cannot pay. Help us to see, Lord, today our need for Jesus. But Father, help us to also see um, the incredible freedom that he gives, the incredible vulnerability that he gives, the incredible peace that he gives. If we stand in him, then we stand complete. Help us to see that today, Father. Open our eyes, Father. I ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.